0: Our Father in heaven, this this Pentecost Sunday where the church traditionally remembers you pouring out your spirit on your people, we, we pray today that you would speak to us. Might your spirit be at work among us, opening our ears that we might hear your voice. Taking my weak and feeble words and applying them to us and to our hearts. And might he be a spirit who comforts as well. In a broken world of tragedy, would we know our comfort and protection in you, that we might cry, Abba, Father, trusting you and your goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get back into um, Joshua after a slight pause last week, there's a bit of a different one today because there's something of an elephant in the room that we need to deal with um, as we get into Joshua chapter 6. Have a look down at the passage with me. Maybe, maybe you're new to church things and you kind of bought, as uh, Lance read for us. Have a look at verse 21 and then verse 24. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Verse 24, they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with those verses? Every living thing seemingly destroyed the whole city burnt to the ground apart from silver and gold and bronze that they then steal for the Lord. Are you okay with that? It's an elephant in the room because it's an issue for people of our age, our culture, that they struggle with. And I know it's an elephant in the room because I know many here struggle because you've chatted to me about it and I have slightly fobbed you off until chapter 6. And here is chapter 6. The big question is, does God here in Joshua condone genocide? That is, as he asks and enables his people to go and destroy Jericho, to remove the Canaanites, and everything that comes across their path, can that be moral? Is that right? It's a really important apologetic question for us to get to grips with and to deal with. So before we jump into the text, I'm going to try and do a bit of an extended introduction. As I say, it's slightly unusual for us, um, but to spend a bit of time trying to think through this issue and how we can grapple with it and what our answer might be to it. Um, and I want to do three things, if you like, before we get into the passage itself. So it might be slightly longer, but we should be okay for time, forgive me. Um, firstly, I want to say why it is such an issue for people in our age, in our culture, Um, at least in the West. Of course, different mindsets and worldviews will struggle less with this. But we, in this place and at this time, do struggle with it. We need to be honest with that. The second thing is then to give a slightly broader picture, um, some bigger picture ideas of what's going on in the Bible. And then thirdly, some more specific stuff from Joshua itself. So firstly, why is this such a big question? I think there are two reasons in particular why it is a big issue for us. Firstly, it's the challenge of what we might call the new atheists. So here's um, Richard Dawkins. He's always good for a pithy quote. Um, he says this. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice the uh, slight, slight of hand there. Um, Jealous and proud of it. A, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A bit vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, um, sadomastic, capriciously malevolent bully. Um, he, he, he didn't debate William Lane Craig October 2011 in Oxford because of this, basically, because he said God is a God of genocide, the God of the Bible, and he, he wouldn't bring himself to debate him. Is Dawkins' right? Because people looking for an excuse not to believe in God and people who rally behind Richard Dawkins and hear this kind of thing, well, it's a great excuse for them to not actually deal with the God of the Bible at all. Do we sing songs to a genocidal God this morning? The second reason I think it's really important we get to grips with it is this, and it's the challenge of what I have called militant Islam. So, last night in London last week in Manchester acts of terrorism and we put the 10 o'clock news on and we hear stories of jihad around the world and stories of ISIS and Taliban and people willing to to murder and to maim others but they take their inspiration for doing so from religious texts they think they are doing what Allah wants them to do isn't that what we've just seen in the Old Testament here in Joshua? is that what's going on? Maybe you feel some of that. It is a live question, isn't it? It's part of the air that we breathe. We need to work out our answer, to engage with it, critique it and respond to it. Second one then is just some slightly bigger picture thoughts from the Bible, trying to get our lay of the land and our thinking. Some of the things we don't necessarily think that much about, but it's important we do. And the first thing I want to say is this. Love cries out for justice. Because ours is a God of love, he, he cares about wrongdoing and evil. It's great to hear Johnny pray for justice. Because our God loves justice, because he is a God of love. He cannot not care about wrongdoing because of who he is, because of his holiness. You, you get it if you read the comments section in the Oxford Mail. People who have been caught over local crimes in this area, and you read the vehement reactions of people against them. They want them to be punished. They want them to face justice. They want them to be locked up and throw away the key. Think of Bullfinch from a few years ago. Local girls here, groomed and sold and abused by gangs of men, and there's something in us that cries out for justice. Think of the nine men in Rochdale recently, um, jailed for sexually exploiting teenage girls, made into a three-part series. It's still on iPlayer on the BBC. And there are known offenders still at large in the community. And we know it's wrong. And we hate it. And we long for it to be dealt with. We long for punishment. We long for justice. we said this one before, but if, if a spouse comes home to find their husband or wife in bed with someone else, because they love them so much, they are angry. They can't just ignore it. They want justice. Love cries out for justice. But so often we miss how fiercely, almost frighteningly good our God is. How big our sin is. How much God hates sin. Which means in the Bible when we get just a small glimpse now and again of God's measured, just, right anger against sin, his patient hatred of injustice and wrongdoing, we're we're surprised or a bit embarrassed about it haven't you just overreacted a bit here? Couldn't you just turned a blind eye to this one? The world is so big and bad stuff is so common. Why does this one matter so much, we think? When we see God's justice in action at times, we're not quite sure what to do with it. Because we've lost that side of his character so often in our understanding of who he is, our relationship with him. But his justice is seen right through the pages of Scripture and we can't hide from that however uncomfortable it might make us feel. I wanted just to show you briefly some of the different ways that his justice is seen through the text in the Bible. And I think how it it works slightly differently depending on where you are. Um, Hopefully you'll see why this is important. So, before Jesus in the Old Testament, justice is, is very often seen in there and then time. That is, in real time. Sin and disobedience, often, after God's patient waiting and warning, there's a delay, there's a call to repentance, but you see his anger then. And at times, although fewer times than you might expect, that is through war. You see it, interestingly, perhaps almost more often in war, if you like, against his wayward people. As he disciplines his people for their sin. Don't just think it's his people marching around the place, beating others up. It's almost as if he expects more of his people. His people face his justice. But then as well as that, there is war through his way with people at times. You see that in Joshua. There are a few other places, but it's not that common. Actually, not as common as Dawkins or others would like to paint for us. And it's worth saying as well that there are passages where they talk about war and there are ground rules for war. Places like Deuteronomy 20. Ground rules such as, you can give the other army usually an an opportunity to surrender and they get their chance to surrender or not. Or or the, the reason why they're going to war, this is particularly important, and we'll see this later in the passage, is to avoid his people being led astray and infected by false worship. That is, it's almost as if it's cancer. And he's saying, you must get rid of it. You can't allow it to live, because it will kill you. So justice in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament as well, after Jesus. I think in at least three places, unusually, there is also the temporal there and then judgment. Think Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Think some of the church in 1 Corinthians 11, um, where they were not looking after properly. Remember at the Lord's Supper at the Lord's Table, and some were falling asleep. That seems to be a temporal judgment there and then against the church again. You do still hear of rare occurrences this day as well, in our day. But it seems to me the usual way that God judges in the New Testament is either at the cross with Jesus the Saviour, where he takes the anger of God against his people's sin, or is Jesus the judge where he will come back And folk will face the consequences of their own sin. Which is a sobering thought. It is something that Jesus speaks most of in the Bible. Mostly from his lips. Which means the God of the New Testament is not a different one from the God of the Old Testament. He is still perfectly good and pure and loving and holy and just. But rather his anger is delayed until Jesus comes back or his anger is poured out upon his son. So, there are the broad thoughts. Secondly, keep with me. Just some narrower thoughts now from Joshua. And I hope these are helpful. The first thing is this. Is it right this is good news for the nations? Because I think it's worth saying there is a tension here in the Old Testament. The flow, it seems to me, of the Old Testament is one of blessing for the nations. That is, God chooses a nation for himself that the nations might see his glory and be drawn to it. We'll look at it in a bit, but Exodus 19 makes this really clear. The holiness of his people as a royal priesthood is to be for the sake of the nations. That they might come and worship and enjoy him. So he starts with his little people. And then it it goes out from there like ripples to the ends of the earth. That is the flow of the Bible. And there are glimpses of that along the way. For example, you get Abraham. The the promise to Abraham explicitly states that to the ends of the earth. Or as the people leave Egypt, so Egyptians come with them. Or as Jonah goes to Nineveh, the people seem to repent and they're not judged. Or, Or as Rahab or Ruth or the Queen of Sheba in different ways are drawn into the story of Israel like kind of moths around the light. Becoming part of the story. Maybe if the people were to welcome the stranger because they knew what it was to be strangers in Israel. In Egypt, sorry. So we mustn't think that God is some kind of racist. It's simply him and his people against the world, destroying who they can along the way. That's not the picture of the text. The bigger picture, when you have step back and have a proper look, is that the nations are to be drawn into the plan of God. Which then begs the question, what's going on in Joshua? What's different here? Second thought is just to do with the context of Canaan. I think this is where the rubber begins to hit the road. Our problem can be, perhaps I'll say that again, my problem can be that that I think of the Canaanites perhaps as basically good or pretty neutral. So we have in mind the inhabitants of Jericho just sitting there, minding their own business drinking cups of coffee, reading books and lo and behold, through no fault of their own they unjustly get booted out of their house. But a couple of reasons why I'm not sure that works. The first is that the Canaanite religion was horrific. It was horrible. As they worshipped Baal and Asherah, for example as far as we can tell, that included incest Bestiality, child sacrifice, illicit sex, immoral violence, and more. That was how they worshipped their gods. If you like, that was going to church for them. That was what their worship looked like, and it was horrible. And and as an aside, who suffers most in societies like that? Well, the weak and the vulnerable. Those who can be abused, those who can be taken for granted, those who are at the bottom of the pile. Leviticus 18, you can look at it later, the land of Canaan is described as vomiting out its inhabitants because it's become so unclean, so disgusting, so unpalatable. So the Canaanites were not neutral. It's not nice. But more than that as well, it's, it's worth knowing, As I've read some different commentaries on this, as far as we can tell, There's very good evidence that Jericho and I, so Jericho we get this week and Ai in a couple of weeks, chapter 8, the two centres highlighted, picked up if you like particularly, were primarily military centres it seems. They were fortified cities, full of soldiers, full of armies, the kind of gateway into the land if you like. Some studies spoke of Jericho being pretty small as well, 200 metres by 80 metres, if you look at the archaeology stuff showing very little by way of civilian housing. We know there is some, of course, because Rahab's there and her family, but not that much, which perhaps it means that civilian loss was minimised. This was mostly military. And the third question, is a word about words. What do I mean by that? I think there's something interesting going on in the language that is used in these passages, actually right through the Old Testament. And one example is Joshua 10 and verse 40. Just come ahead. We'll be there in a few weeks' time, but we'll give you a sneaky peek now. Page 226. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes. Together with all their kings, he left no survivors he totally destroyed all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And you read that and you think, everyone's dead. They must be. No one breathing. But then go on a few pages and you get to Judges, for example, and suddenly it becomes clear they are not. The Canaanites are still rife. And it turns out, as God said, like moss around a candle Remarkably easy, his people do stray after other gods. So what does it mean in Joshua ten verse forty? Is he lying? Is he exaggerating a bit and hoping no one notices or well, no one's there to check and count the numbers? Did he think he had done a good job but wasn't so much the kind of complete or finisher type? But well, what's going on? What's happening in Joshua? Well the argument goes that he is using a kind of military rhetoric. What does that mean? Imagine this, you're at work and you're giving a presentation at the front and you've got your PowerPoints and you've got your screen and everything's working and you finish and you sit down and someone afterwards over a cup of tea says, you you totally killed it. You smashed it. That doesn't mean you're supposed to go and apologise for what you did to the laptop. It means you did a really good job. It means you finished it. It means you did, you know, eight and a half out of ten, nine out of ten. It's a figure of speech. It's a good thing. And so to say they were totally destroyed might not actually mean they were totally destroyed. It might simply mean that they thoroughly beat them. There's a similar line of thought back in Deuteronomy 7, if you're taking notes. Um, It's a key passage for this theme, actually. Kitty and I were at a conference there a couple of weeks ago and there will be uh, talks off the back of that um, we will put them on our Facebook page or something. So if you want to um, ask me for that, the stuff has been recorded, it's not live yet. Um, but it's interesting, there's a similar thing in that he says you're to totally wipe them out, but then in the next verse he says, oh, but don't let your kids intermarry with their kids, and don't worship their gods, and don't bow down to their idols. You're thinking, but I've just wiped them out, and then how could my kids marry their kids? And the emphasis seems to be far less about genocide, but far more about idolatry getting rid of false worship. Why does that matter so much? Well, we'll come on to that in a bit, but it's particularly because God's plan for the nations is that his people will show the world what he is like, that they might know him through them. And if they are constantly running after other gods, and if they are constantly getting it wrong, if they are constantly not being distinct and different, but just like the world, then they stop being what they are meant to be. And well, that's why he cares about idolatry so much, at least in part. More on that in a bit. Now i will probably raised more questions for you there, or raise questions you've not even thought of. Um, what, why is this such a big problem? Because of the culture that we live in, particularly the new atheists, and particularly a kind of militant Islam at the moment. Broader thoughts from the Bible. God's love is always coupled with justice. It has to be, because that is what true love is. And Then more specifically in Joshua, remember the nations remember the flow of the Old Testament and remember Canaan as well it was not neutral but then also maybe the words that we read don't quite mean what we think they mean come and grab me afterwards A milk and one sugar please anyway let's go into Joshua 6 and we'll start the sermon <laughs> not joking. Um, so you see, just as the people were to enter um, through the river, through the river Jordan in chapters 3 to 4, with the ark in the lead, you see in chapter 6 that this is the Lord at work. This is not them. All they do is they march, and they blow trumpets, and they shout. And so when you sing in Sunday school, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, it will be in your heads for the rest of the day it's not strictly true they had to be obedient they had to be faithful but when push comes to shove it wasn't that much of a battle verse 3 for six days with the ark in the lead trumpets blowing they marched around the city once on the seventh day verse 4 they march around the city seven times they blow their trumpets as a, after a loud trumpet they make a huge racket the wall will collapse and in they go this is the Lord at work again do you see I'm not the kind of person who reads military manuals or military history, but I doubt this is a recognised strategy. This is unusual. But the people get up with it. And they obey, and they trust. In fact, later in the Bible, Hebrews 11.30, we're told they did it by faith again. Active obedience. Trusting the faithful God and his covenant promises. And so do you see in verse 6, Joshua briefs the priests on their rolls, ark carriers, trumpet blowers. Verse 7, Joshua briefs the army on their rolls, ark guarders and marchers. Verse 8, he briefs the rest of the people. And so they march. Trumpets, but no shouting for six days. Seventh day, they blow their trumpets, they shout, they take the city. Two little caveats. The first is, Well, two little caveats that show, again, something of God's faithfulness in all this, I think. The first is that they must not take any of the devoted or valuable things, verse 18. you see that? Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Verse 19, all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So, see, the articles of Canaanite worship must be kept away from again. They are the Lord's, regardless of how valuable or costly or beautiful they look. They are devoted to him for destruction. So you can't handle them, don't touch them. Come back next week and you'll see how that goes. So again, you see his faithfulness in in not taking any of the devoted or valuable things. They must also protect Rahab and her family. That was back in chapter 2, if you were around. The Israelites are to be faithful to the promise of Rahab, who protects his the Lord's people and preserve them. And then if so, verse 17, that's spelt out, and 22 to 25, you see that coming to pass. Rahab is protected. She's scooped up into the people of God and included in the line of Jesus. And then Joshua does this weird thing. He curses, verse 26, he curses the city, meaning nobody else is able to build upon it have a look, So at that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, curse before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. Which, which sounds a bit random. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Why this curse? Is it because it's just a really bad place? I wonder where the best answer is. Something like it's the first city to be conquered in the land. It's something like the first fruits of the land. This is the one to be wholly devoted to the Lord, verse 17. And to rebuild upon it in one sense is to take back from him what is his, to undo what he has done. And if you know your Bibles, you know a bit later, 1 Kings 16, at a particularly low point under King Ahab. As evidence of their rebellion, Jer- Jericho is rebuilt. And the curse comes to pass. 1 Kings 16 verse 34, in Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, in addition, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. but so what? What is Joshua 6 to do with us? It's a bit of an epic one. We spent quite a long time thinking apologetically how we we understand what's going on in Canaan and Jericho. What does this mean for us? It's a challenging passage in many ways because it really shows us front and centre the holiness of God. There are lots of things I could say, but I want to zoom in on one thing really and put it in two halves. And it's to see how God's holiness relates to his people. So we see this as the first thing. The danger of the gods of the world in the church. You see, that is why they are so clearly and decisively told to stay away from the Canaanite worship things, the devoted articles, to give them to the Lord, to avoid them. Because he can't trust them. And we'll see it next week. He was right. Very simply, the Lord knows the reality of our hearts. And you see the story of God's people, and you see it's the story of people's hearts who go astray. God knows that. So he wants to protect his people from sinful hearts. That's run after other gods. It's as if we are recovering alcoholics and we we stash bottles under the bed and we think it'll be okay. It wasn't great last time, but this time it'll be fine. This time we'll be okay with it. It's going to be alright. But it is a problem. And it's not fine. It never is. And so he says to them Leave them alone. Give them to me. Don't touch them. And we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we do wonder. In Canaan it would have been Asherah idols to Molech, and things like that. Things used in, in the worship of their gods, unpleasant things. That's not our context. But you see, the danger is that the gods of this world still come into the church and they still come in and coexist and we overlook them and don't notice them and it gets really messy. So maybe it's the gods of self that we see in our culture and our society. And it comes into the church and it means that God is here to serve me and to make me feel good and to give me what I want and so all my dreams can come true. And our faith becomes a faith with us at the centre. And with my comfort most important. Just like the culture around us. Because the devoted things come in. Maybe it's the gods of money. Perhaps less so in a church like this. But some parts of the church will teach if we've really played our part. And really done the things that we're meant to do. Then God ought to bless us with a decent bank balance. And some savings as well. And a nice holiday. And we dream the dreams just like the culture around us. Because the God of money creeps into the church. Or maybe it's the God of respect or popularity. And we think, well, what God really needs is a bit of a PR job. I want to deal with some of these kind of messy bits of his, his character and his message. And so we're uncomfortable with bits like this. The God who hates sin. Or the God who calls for obedience. And so we airbrush and we photoshop and we downplay. And we think, well, he'll get a bit more of a following. And it might sound a bit wiser to the ears of this world, and a bit more palatable to people that we know. And then Jesus comes and says, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, or throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we struggle with that, we need to be careful, it's not necessarily a literal chopping off of hands that's needed, but it is a literal killing of sin that's needed. Get rid of it. Do away with it. We can't allow it into our weeks. We can't make excuses for it. We can't allow ourselves to play the victim card. And I couldn't help it. No, whatever our tendency is to justify it, it's just the world creeping into the church. And the problem is, we think we can cope and we stash the bottles under the bed and we try and pretend it'll be okay. And yet he says keep away from the devoted things so that you won't bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Maybe your question, maybe your question is why does this worship thing matter so much? Why does he care so much about what his people worship? Why is that so high on God's agenda again and again and again? I take it in large part, it's because he made us and he knows how he made us. He knows what he made us for. He knows whom he made us for, for him. And so he knows what is best for us. But as we've already said, a big bit of it, a big bit of it comes from the fact that God has planned it this way. His people are to be holy because he is holy and the world will see what he is like when he sees that we are distinct. God's people are to be distinct, second point. We've already said the key Old Testament passage. Have a look more carefully in home groups this week. But Exodus 19, just before the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 and verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if they stop being the kingdom of priests and the holy nation, and if they stop being different and distinct and stop reflecting him and showing the world what he is like, then how does the plan work? If they think and speak and look like everyone else, what does the world think their God is like? If we if we think and speak and look just like everyone else, how will the world know what he is like? How will the world know how amazing and beautiful and lovely and extraordinary he is? He needs to protect his wayward people. That we will continue to be holy, that they might see what he is like and come to know him. And I found that profoundly challenging. And so I finish a chapter like Joshua 6, so thankful for the Lord Jesus. Because here we see, in Joshua 6, we see just a glimpse of how much God detests sin. At Jericho we get a painful glimpse of what will happen when he finally comes to bring justice against sin. And so for for us, we look ahead to when Jesus will finally come back and forever deal with the brokenness and the rebellion of this world. But for us as well, we look back to the cross and we see where he took the judgment that people like us deserve upon himself. The one who will judge was the one who took our judgment if we'll trust him. He pays the penalty for our waywardness and our compromise, and for how similar to the world that we can look. From the way that we put the bottles under the bed and keep the devoted things for ourselves, and our hearts wander after them, and we begin to just look like everyone else. But it's at the cross we see wrath and mercy. It's at the cross we see his anger against our sin satisfied. It's at the cross we see the depth and the reality of our own hearts, but the heights and the extraordinary love that he has for us. The one who will judge became the one who took our judgments, And so I'm so thankful for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess how easily we struggle with passages like this, where very starkly we see your justice and your anger against sin very starkly we see how well you know our hearts and the way that they are prone to wander after other things. And so we long that you would put within us a desire for holiness, a desire to do away with sin, to kill sin, because we see how vehemently you hate it, And yet we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus, because there we see, at the cross, we see something of, of your love for your people, as he extraordinarily pours out himself for us. Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, would your spirit be at work in us? Might he be convicting us, of the reality of our sin, but might he be at work in us? conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name and for his glory. Amen.